Today I want to talk a little bit about worship. Worship. Early on in his first term, President Barack Obama was, Obama, I can say that word right, I can, it's my voice. President Barack Obama was criticized voraciously for bowing down to King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia at the G20 summit in London. His critics, they saw it as an act of of submission to the Saudi monarchy and they said, how dare an American president bow to anyone? Other people dismissed it as a typical sign of of political uh, dignitary protocols and others thought, you know, it's a shrewd move. We wanna be friends with those guys. They got a lot of oil. Whatever your perspective may be, and this isn't about politics, but bowing down has always been considered an act of self-humbling and submission to one who is greater than you. Bowing down has always been an act of worship. And this weekend, we are celebrating Palm Sunday when the crowds waved palm branches and they bowed down, laid their cloaks down before Jesus as he made his way into Jerusalem. And so today, we are gonna be studying a little bit about worship in John chapter 12, because the reality is that every single one of us, in fact, every person who has ever lived worships something. We all worship something. God made us to worship. That's ingrained within us, wired within us. And today, we want to evaluate what Jesus says proper worship looks like and look at an example of improper, vain worship. And we're gonna evaluate whether we're bowing down to the one true king or whether we're bowing down to something else. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12, we're gonna start in verse 12 of John chapter 12, and as you're turning there, I'm gonna pray. Father God, I come before you, and Lord, I ask that your spirit would fill me, Lord, and speak through me. My voice, Lord, as weak as it is, is, Lord, yours, yield it completely and fully to you. And I pray that my heart and mind would follow as well. And I pray that all of us would be spoken to, be transformed by your spirit as you use your word to pierce our hearts and call us to you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Now, in the final year of his ministry, Jesus made his way south from Galilee down to Jerusalem for what he knew would be the last couple of days that he had on earth, well, until he was resurrected again, but he made his way down, he stopped in Jericho, and you can read about it, he did some miracles, healed some blind men, talked to Zacchaeus, and then he made his way to Bethany, and in Bethany, about a week and a half before um, his crucifixion and resurrection, he met Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Jesus was very close friends with them. He had raised Lazarus from the dead, and so those three threw him a party. 
And at that party, Mary anoints his feet, and the crowd that watched Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, they all came out to, to support and to see this Jesus again. And it's about at this point that we pick up our text in John chapter 12, starting in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went down to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So there's this crowd that's walking with Jesus from Bethany, approaching Jerusalem, people who had seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, and they're proclaiming, hey, this is Jesus, he raised Lazarus from the dead, and this is getting people's attention. And the crowd starts building higher and higher, bigger, larger, and then the city of Jerusalem gets word of this massive crowd coming, and so then they go out to meet him, and you can kind of imagine the scene. It's this, this huge, huge uproar as these people sing, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king. And that word, Hosanna, it's a, it's a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word which means, oh, save, or save now. The people are crying out, save us, Jesus. Save us, king of kings. Save us, the one who has been sent from God. See, they thought that Jesus was going to be this political deliverer. And if you've studied any of this history before, you probably know that. They thought that he was going to be a conquering king who would get them out from underneath the rule of Rome. And what better time to do it than on Passover, right? I mean, that's when they remember when they were delivered from the Egyptian rule all those hundreds of years ago. So that makes sense that the Messiah would do that now. They correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah, but here's the catch. They wanted God's Messiah to conform to their plans. They had no interest in God's plan for them. John MacArthur wrote, the people wanted Jesus on their own terms. And they would not bow to a king who was not to their liking, even though he was the son of God. They wanted Jesus to destroy Rome, but not their cherished sins or their hypocritical, superficial religion. He was not a Messiah who came to offer a panacea of external peace in the world, but to offer the infinitely greater blessing of internal peace with God. And it's right here at this point that we need to identify 
the praises and worship of the multitude for Jesus as improper worship. It's improper, false, vain worship. This wasn't true worship of Jesus as Savior and Lord. This was idolatrous exaltation of a king of the Jews' own making that proceeded from the self-centered desires of their hearts. And you might have never seen this this way before, but I wanna dig into this to help us to understand why this is improper worship. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 tells us why so many people flocked to Christ. They heard about his miraculous power and they expected that power to be used for them. They were glorying in the political gift that they expected to receive from Jesus as they expected a conquering king. And they dismissed the spiritual gift that Jesus actually came to give to all who would put their faith in him by God's grace. And this is a trap that any single one of us can very easily fall into, especially since it can look like genuine religious devotion. That's that's the subtle trick to this. See, any time we're lifting up anything other than our triune God, it's improper worship. Matthew 15, Jesus speaking, quoting Isaiah, he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. See, our hearts, our hearts are so deceptive. They're, they're idol factories, as they've famous, famously been called by John Calvin. And so if we aren't, if we aren't really, really super mindful of what our hearts are chasing after, even if it's in the appearance of something good, we can easily slip into the subtle trap of vain worship, improper worship, even if it's directed to God. Tim Keller, he put it this way, sin isn't only doing bad things, It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. Now, because my voice is so weak and to help further illustrate the point, I want us to watch this little video right up here on the screen as I go get a drink of water.
in our lives limited to worship Jesus, that's when we actually find ourselves. Everyone worships, but we were made to worship just one. We're all worshiping something. That's how we were made. We were made to worship. And our hearts, our hearts are going to shape the rest of us around what we worship. We will become what we worship. It's as simple as that. And unless and until that worship is fixed on Jesus, we will always be left empty and unsatisfied. As we look at ourselves, we've got to be mindful of the thoughts that we think that we're dwelling on, what, what our goals are are focused on, what our time and money is spent on, what our hearts long for and what our lives chase after. These are all indicators of things that are trying to get us to move our eyes off of God and onto some replacement. The video offered a few very common examples of the improper worship that we can fall into, but even more subtle than those things, though the video did mention religion at the beginning. And what I want us to see on display in the text here is that we as Christians can offer improper idolatrous worship to God in our nice little Christian box. And maybe you never thought about this before. Maybe you never thought about the fact that your worship of God might be improper. It might be idolatrous. You might be praising Jesus just like the multitude on Palm Sunday was doing. And it may be vain, empty worship. That's a scary thought. (laughs) And it's a scary thought for me because this is a trap that I've certainly fallen into And it wasn't until I actually started really paying attention to not only how I praise God, but why I praise God and worship God that this began to make sense to me. See, it's easy for many of us to thank God for the things that he has blessed us with. I mean, I I hope you find it relatively easy to thank God for those things, right? A common prayer that you might have heard me pray in the past would have gone something like this, Father God, I thank you so much for saving me. I thank you, Lord, for my salvation that you sent your son to die for me, Lord, and Lord, I am your son, so I praise you for that, and I thank you for that. Now, that prayer right there isn't necessarily a bad prayer of praise and thanksgiving, but here's the thing that we need to recognize. It's incomplete. And it's empty and vain if I end it with saying nothing more than thank you. Well, why, why is that? Well, it's because all I'm doing is thanking God 
for the gift, which is appropriate. We should thank God for the gifts. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? From the Father of lights. It's James 1. But when all I'm doing is thanking God for the gift and ending there, I'm not actually worshiping and praising the gift giver himself. I'm making the gift, which in the case of my prayer just before, was my salvation. And I'm making that the ultimate object of my praise instead of praising the Lord as the God who saves. Do do we see the difference there? This is a really subtle distinction, but it's one that the multitude on Palm Sunday certainly didn't understand, and it's one that we as Christians, we can fall into this so quickly, so easily. One says, thank you God for this amazing gift you have given me, and the other says, thank you God for being amazing. (laughs) One magnifies the gift while the other magnifies our God, and, and why this is so dangerous is because worship of the gift, even if it's naive, even if it's ignorant, well, worship of the gift is just worship of ourselves. All we're doing is focusing on us through the lens of thanking God for what he's done for me. Thank you, God, for my salvation. Thank you, God, for answering my prayer. Thank you, God, for the blessings in my life. Do we see? Do we see what we're really doing? It's just just a subtle way to worship ourselves, which is exactly what they were doing on Palm Sunday. They weren't really worshiping Christ. All they wanted was to be saved by him. And this this subtle, vain worship, it can creep in through the songs that we sing. I mean, half the Christian songs that we listen to, it's, it's this, improper, vain worship. And the prayers that we pray that though well intentioned, well meaning, they're falling short of worshiping God himself. See, many of us, we can be all about Jesus so long as he provides for our needs, our desires, our wants, our health, our wealth, our happiness, and all the other things that we hope to achieve in this world. But the telltale sign of improper worship is that when things go poorly, when we don't get what we want, or we don't get what we want when we want it, we pick up our palm branches and we begin to question our devotion to God. Because if God's not gonna give this to me, then I'm not sure I can worship a God like that. Or, God gave that to me instead, which really stinks because it's a hard, difficult trial, a test. And all we're doing, all we're doing is we are viewing God through the lens of the gift that he gives us. 
And if it's good, we think he's good, and if it's bad, we think he's bad, and we can only worship him when it's good. In which case, we're not really worshiping him, we're just worshiping ourselves because of the goodness that we're receiving. Do we, do we understand this? Is this making sense? I see a lot of blank stares, I blame my voice. See, it's idolatry neatly packaged into a Christian box. Hey, I'm worshiping Jesus. No, you're not. You're really worshiping yourself with a Christian name on it. This is what they did on Palm Sunday, right? Instead of appealing to the mercy and relentless grace of our mighty God, and worshiping the true king of kings, the true lord of lords, they ultimately rejected Christ when he turned out to be nothing like they wanted him to be. And five days after singing his praises, they were calling for his crucifixion. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing as our hearts harden against God because we're focusing on the gift, which is really just focusing on us. Of course, thankfully, Jesus knows the hearts of those in the crowd, and he knows all of our hearts. And the first thing he does when he gets into Jerusalem, according to Luke 19, is he weeps over the city. He weeps over the city because he knows that their hearts are far from him. He knows that their worship is vain. He knows that their worship is just a facade for their self-worship. But he doesn't just weep over them. As he always does, he continues to give us chance after chance after chance to turn from our idolatry, our vain worship, and turn back to properly worshiping God. And so shortly after he arrives, the Gospel of John tells us that some God-fearing Greeks, proselytes to the Jewish faith, Gentiles who became Jewish worshipers of Yahweh, they make their way over to his disciples as they want to meet the one who is making this city go crazy. And so we pick up our text in verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we have some Greeks, some, some Gentiles, who are most, most likely they're in the court of Gentiles in the temple because the other gospels tell us that Jesus actually, after he got done weeping over the city, he went to the temple, checked it out. The next day came back and drove the money changers out. But, so he's in the temple, Jesus is in the temple and these guys are most likely in the court of Gentiles which is as far as Gentiles could go in the temple. Jesus is most likely on one of the inner courts, so they go to his disciples, Philip, and they say, hey, we wanna see Jesus. Can you have him come out and talk to us? 
Now, interestingly, these Gentiles, these Greeks, they didn't get caught up in the veneration of Jesus as the conquering king. Why wouldn't they have gotten caught up in that? Why wouldn't they have cared about that? Well, they're Gentiles, they're Greeks. They don't care about Roman rule over them. It just is what it is. They don't feel oppressed by the Romans. And so they're not getting caught up in all this political mumbo jumbo. They just wanted to find out who this Jesus was, why all these people were saying this stuff about him. And so they decided to go right to the source and see Jesus for themselves. Now, if I were you, I'd circle the request to see Jesus. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus because seeing Jesus is the critical first step of true worship. They weren't content with hearing about the signs and wonders that Christ had done. They didn't get caught up in the religious fervor of the people and superficially follow Christ because that was the cultural thing to do. Nor did they form Christ into an idol and seek after him so that he could do something for them. Just, you know, maybe he'll do something sweet for me. Instead, they simply wanted to encounter Jesus for themselves and determine if he was worthy to be bowed down to. And as we, you and I, as we seek to worship our God, we have got to start. It always starts with seeing Jesus, focusing on Jesus, fixing our eyes on Christ. Not just because of what he has done for us, though that of course is praiseworthy and we should praise him for what he has done for us. But more than that, we worship him for who he is. He is the holy, righteous, just, loving, merciful, gracious, all-powerful, all-knowing, faithful, steadfastly loving, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the Alpha and the Omega. His is the name that is above all other names. The name at which every knee on heaven and on earth will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That is Jesus. Yes, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so that we may be made right with God through faith. Praise him for that. But that act merely serves to show us who God is, that he is a God who saves, he is a God who redeems, he is a God who is just, but who is loving. He's a God who loved the world so much that he would give his son for all of us. The gift serves to show us more about the giver. But if we focus on the gift, then we miss out on knowing the giver of the gift more intimately, more closely. And we don't worship God. We worship the gift, which is worship of ourselves. So how? How do we see Jesus? How do we get to know Jesus? How do we focus on Christ? Well, it's not complicated, actually. 
You guys all know the answer to that, most likely. It's just doing, right? It's spending time with him on our knees in prayer. Talking to him, not just asking him for stuff, but listening to what he has to say. Reading about him in the word of God as we get to know him, who he is. Learning about the names of God, for example. We did that sermon series a while back. That's a great study to get to know God, to see who he is. By asking the Lord to move in your life that you would experience the power of the Holy Spirit at work transforming you and leading you. It's one of the amazing ways to get to see Jesus and getting to know God. It's by the, his power at work with us. By spending time with those who have put their faith in Christ because they're being transformed into him and so we can know Jesus through each other. So there needs to be some discernment there because we're all pretty messed up still. (laughs) But there are good parts that show us Jesus. The first step of proper worship is always seeking to see and know who God is and worshiping him for who he is and not just what he's done. But the second step of proper worship, we have to recognize that it's far more than just raised hands and uplifted voices. Proper worship always involves sacrifice, submission, service. The proper bowing of ourselves down before the one who is alone, worthy of all of our worship and praise. Jesus continues on now in verse 23 and he says, truly, truly I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, just as Jesus Christ was willing to die a death on a cross as an act of love and submission and obedience to God the Father, so we are called to die to ourselves daily and serve and follow our Lord. That's true worship. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9. That's what we're called to do. That's true worship. But we're not gonna do that if all we see is the gift. We're not gonna do that if we don't see Jesus. Because the reality is, the more we love our lives, the more we will focus on the gift, the less we'll see Jesus, and the more likely it is that our worship is just improper false worship. 
That's why Jesus says, if anyone loves his life, he's gonna lose it. But the one who hates his life in this world will keep it. This doesn't mean that you actually hate your life. It just means that your life is put in the proper place. It's loved less than Jesus Christ. That's what that means. Remember, we all worship. We all bow down to something or someone. That's how God made us. Most of us, at the end of the day, worship ourselves. At least, that's what this world does. And that can look like an infinite number of things. But we're called to worship the living God the one true king, and bow down to him alone and serve him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, again, we can ask ourselves some questions to help us to think about this. And perhaps, as the Holy Spirit answers these questions for us, there are things that we need to repent of and ask the Lord's mercy for and grace for to do better. I mean, how often is my worship of God sacrificial? How often am I putting aside my own desires, my own plans and conveniences and comforts and doing what I know God is calling me to do? It's so easy to fall into a comfortable place of worship. But that's usually not sacrificial worship. We're called to sacrifice in our worship as we serve God, as we lay down our lives for him. Am I allowing the Lord to shape me into his servant? Or am I shaping God into who I want him to be? How, how many of you played Plato, played with Plato when you were a kid? I mean, I played with my kids last week playing Plato. It's fun, right? Making little things. Our hearts will do one of two things. Either our hearts will be soft and pliable and the Lord will be able to shape them and mold them as we submit and bow to him in in worship, as we see him and move closer to him, or our hearts will be hard. And more than that, I mean, you all know what happens when Plato dries out, right? It's like really brittle, hard. More than that, our hearts will not only be hard, but our hearts will try to shape God into what our hearts want. So there's only two ways we go. Either we allow God to shape us or we try to shape God. That's what worship is all about. Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Proper worship has to be directed to our triune God himself as we see him more clearly, we get to know him more intimately and as we serve him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The people on Palm Sunday, most of them, the vast majority of them, they weren't willing to do either of those two things. And we can't fall into the trap of being like them. We all worship something. Like our president, we're all going to bow down to someone. Some of us are bowing down to the things we watched in the video. Some of us are bowing down to ourselves and we're deceived into thinking that it's really worship of our God. But we've gotta be honest and recognize that it's improper worship. We need to see that as the self-worship it is and we need to repent of our sin and seek to know and see Jesus Christ and sacrificially submit and serve him with our whole lives. Amen? Amen. Now as we pray, one of my favorite things to do is to pray through scripture and have some psalms up here that I want us to pray through and you can write these down. Psalm 95 verses six through eight and Psalm 86, 10 through 13. And I'm gonna read them and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna pray. Oh come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For you, Lord, are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me, you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that we are privileged to know you and see you, to see your son Jesus, and to worship you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, we ask that our hearts would be drawn to you, Lord. And that there would be nothing that keeps us from that. Lord, we want our whole hearts to go after you. Father, we repent of the ways in which we have entered into idolatrous, improper self-worship. Focusing on the good things you've given us, but missing out on our opportunity to praise you, to honor you and to bless your name. Father, teach us, guide us. 
Let us learn how to praise you and you alone. That our hearts would not be far from you, like Jesus said, but instead our hearts would be wholly in your hands. We ask this in Jesus' name. This week as we prepare to remember our victorious king who conquered sin and death on the cross and came back to life, let's ask him to help us fix our worship on him and on who he is, not just what he's done, and bow down to our triune God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen.